new one, I reckon. You were, you were being ageist. You were being totally ageist. Well, really uh, great to be here with all of you this morning. Um, my name's Josh, if you don't know me. And this morning we're going to have a look at Psalm 116. So if you're a Bible person, if you've got a Bible or a, a smartphone even, um, you can read along. So I'm reading from the NIV here. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. The cords of death entangled me. The anguish of the grave came upon me. I was overcome by trouble and sorrow. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, save me. The Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. The Lord protects the simple-hearted. When I was in great need, he saved me. Be at rest once more, O my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, O Lord, have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling, that I may walk before the Lord in the land of the living. And then if you want to just zip forward to verse 17. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, in your midst, O Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. I don't know um, what it means for you to take that first step on to the spiral that goes like that, the spiral that goes down. Um, maybe uh, it's a health issue that flares up from time to time, and when it does, you become conscious, um, strongly conscious of your mortality, of the fact that you're not going to live forever, of the fact that um, there is the, there's stuff working away to, to, towards your body's end. And that can take you to a place of, of worry, of despair. I was talking with someone very recently about exactly this thing and he said he finds himself sometimes on the floor because he's got a few health issues um, and he just feels like he's dying. You know, he's so aware of the fact that his body is no longer getting better. It's getting worse. Or maybe um, it's something that happens to you in social contexts, that first step onto the downward spiral, something at work or maybe even at a party. Someone says something to you or ignores you or treats you in a way that feeds into some rejection issues that you've got just below the surface. And as you go to sleep that night, it could be the case that you've heard half a dozen good things over the course of the day. But it's that one kind of twisted comment, slightly spiky interaction that plays over in your head, isn't it? I think uh, it's something of a, of a human condition, actually, that going to bed and thinking of that one thing that wasn't quite right with the day. Whatever it is, you feel alone, you feel mortal, um, you feel insecure, 
you feel anxious. Like I said, I don't know what the spiral looks like for you, what shape it takes particularly, but I think we've all got them to one degree or another. Perhaps you're uh, a mother in the room of young children and the idea of feeling alone uh, <laughs> sounds pretty good, actually. Uh, and you're thinking, geez, uh, if I could uh, embody that cursed uh, state for just a moment, nobody calling at me, not having to break out fights. Um, you might be having a different sort of issues, uh, set of issues. I don't actually have the clicker, Tilly. Could you click that over for me? Um, where life just becomes all too much, right? And so the spiral, rather than looking like a sort of inward thing, is like an outward expression. Um, you, you, some swears might slip out. You might start to, to treat other people in a way that they don't deserve to be treated. Uh, you might get agitated, right, and sort of lash out in one way or another. And that can be because it's hard to balance a budget. Um, things are going on for the kids at school. Life's just too full. You know, there's, there's too many things going on too much of the time. The spiral can also look like that. That spiral, that first step on the way down, down, down to a place where you really don't want to be. And um, it occurs to me that actually those emotions, those thoughts, those sort of strands that can run through our life can become kind of like the bars of a cage that we sometimes find ourselves in. The spiral often leads to a cage. And Tilly, if you could just flick to that next picture. Um, you know when you're there. So sometimes if you have a level of self-awareness, you know when you're getting there. But on any given day, you could be just one or two wrong things away from finding yourself in that dark place where you think, I'm here again. I'm, I'm trapped again. Am I ever going to get out? Am I going to repeat this over and over and over again through the course of my life? Now, some of us only have that dark night of the soul, as some people have called it, once every now and then. Some of us uh, find ourselves there a lot more regularly. But it's a sad irony of life that often the things that, that sort of take us down also entrap us. If we are at some sort of base level afraid of rejection or we've experienced rejection, it's cruel actually um, that that can be the very thing that stops us from really being open to relationships, of taking a risk on, on loving someone else or of investing your life with someone else because the chance of getting hurt is just too high. If um, we're scared of failure, you know, if we're, if, we, if we're the kind of person that lies in bed thinking, my life's going nowhere, I'm, I just seem to struggle and struggle and struggle and get rejected, knocked back at every station, Again, it's this cruel kind of twist that oftentimes it's that very fear of failure that stops us from stepping out and taking the opportunities that could take us forward. Is that, does that sort of make, make sense? And there's kind of a, 
a cruel kind of prison-like flip side to a lot of the thoughts and feelings, emotions that make us who we are, but they can take us downwards. As I've said, we might have a sort of a variety of experiences of this phenomenon. I'd, I'd, I'd imagine that most of us have had a dark night at some point. Most of us, I think, are probably also only one or two difficult, challenging, unfortunate situations, comments, incidents at work away from finding ourselves there and maybe even from finding ourselves there to a degree that we feel like we're trapped forever. Now, if you're getting the picture, you know, if you're, if you're saying, I do know what you're talking about, well, that would make sense because we're human beings and we all share experiences like this. I've actually got some good news for you this morning about this stuff. And the good news is, and thanks Tilly for anticipating that I was going to change slides there, the good news is that scientific studies have shown that London cab drivers have enlarged hippocampus. You're welcome. You're welcome. Aren't you glad that you came to church this morning to hear the good news? Actually, I should probably explain why that is good news. So, um, the hippocampus is the part of the brain that it is kind of related to spatial awareness and memory, right? And some of you will know that London cabbies, to actually get their license, have to remember, you know, a crazy amount of information about how to make their way around the city. Have you heard that before? You don't even get the license unless you, uh, unless you know where you're going. But it's not... Uh, the case that people who are born with large hippocampus, I think it's actually hippocampi, uh, because there's two of them, uh, but people who are born, uh, it's not as though people who are born with a large hippocampus are, are really good taxi drivers and so they just naturally kind of make their way into that profession. What's actually going on there is that... Um, it's this thing you've probably heard of called neural plasticity. So the fact that the brain can adapt, right? And if you use your hippocampus, it gets it gets better. It gets bigger. It seems to, to function more readily when they do the sort of scans of the brain. Um, and this is because, until he's going to flick the uh, slide for me, uh, there's this phenomena of neuroplasticity. So I've taken this exact quote from a guy called uh, Dr. Rick Hansen's book, um, and he's written this book called uh, Hardwired Happiness, uh, and he is a neuropsychologist, or a, new, yeah, a neural psychologist. So he understands the way that people's emotions work, but he also understands a lot about the mind, the, the architecture of the mind, the way that the mind and the nervous system work. And he talks about the fact that if you stimulate a part of your brain, it's like uh, a road that gets cleared. It's like a pathway that is increasingly accessible and increasingly functional, right? So the more that you are operating out of your hippocampus, trying to figure your way around, remember the parts of the city, 
that kind of thing, the better you get at it. Um, he goes on, on the next slide, thanks Tilly, um, to talk about what this means for us as human beings. And he says this, day after day, your mind, because of this phenomenon of neuro, neural plasticity, is actually building your brain. So what's the distinction there? Well, your brain is the organ, right? The physiological thing. Your mind is kind of how you use that, what you use your brain for, how you think, what you're feeling, the choices that you make about what you think, the choices that you make about whether you're going to indulge a feeling or not, uh, the choices that you make about your career, whether you're going to drive a cab and, and stimulate that hypercampus, or whether you're going to be an artist and stimulate your brain differently. And it becomes a kind of cycle thing, Dr. Rick Hansen points out. So you get the brain that you get, basically. It looks a certain way. It's kind of the parts are all there. Um, but you can actually change your brain by using your mind in a particular way. So the kinds of thoughts that you indulge, the, the parts of your brain that you stimulate and that, that you sort of operate in a lot of the time, they will will affect your brain. And so your mind influences your brain, your brain influences your mind. Um, kind of interesting, right? Why is that good news, thinking about the spiral? Well, the reason why it's good news, thinking about that spiral, thinking about the, the thoughts that trap us, the emotions that so often trip us up, is that uh, the way that we respond to them is partly up to us, right? So if you uh, are terrible with directions, you can actually get better at it. You might not ever become a London cabbie, but you can work on that stuff. The brain can change, even right up um, until the, the later parts of life. Increasingly, we're learning the neuroplasticity at stage. You can, you, can, you can exercise your mind. You can improve your brain's function. Of course, uh, while this is good news... Um, it does have a dark side, and, and Dr. Hansen talks about this, so um, Tilly's going to flick the slide. And he talks about the fact, uh, and this is just a really useful little uh, piece of imagery, that our brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, but like Teflon for positive experiences. And there's a whole heap of theory as to why this is. The suggestion by the likes of um, psychologists and um, neurologists who are into this stuff, but also anthropologists, is it sort of serves uh, a survival uh, objective, right? So uh, if things go well during the day, if you think about uh, ancient peoples, maybe they were hunter-gatherers, they work out where to find berries and they work out where the elk are and that's a good thing. All of a sudden, a grizzly bear jumps out at them. Um, the thing that they're going to think about if they survive that bear incident when they go to bed is the grizzly bear. So we know where the berries are, but how can I avoid that bear situation in the future? And some of you will have an experience of this which is far less primal. Um, I've heard my father-in-law talk many times uh, as an engineer about the fact that he would have these problems that he would bring home that was like his brain would tick over. Even sometimes, I mean, Paul often talked about the power of prayer in that instance, but the power of sleep 
as well, you know, so you're, you're lying there. Graham was telling me uh, something recently too where he couldn't get to sleep until he'd solved the problem. He was like scanning over his day and it was like his brain wouldn't let him say, okay, you can switch off now until it was like, ah, that's what I've got to avoid doing next time or that's what I've got to do differently next time. Your brain can catch on the negative stuff. Does that sound true to people? Does that sound like something that you've experienced? Um, and then the positive stuff, it's still there, but the Teflon idea is it just, it just goes past. And so what uh, Dr. Hansen and other people who've worked in this area have said is you really need to guard the good stuff. You need to steward the positive. Um, your brain is automatically going to catch onto that negative stuff. That's going to become a part of the architecture of your mind. It's going to influence the way that you think. But not necessarily when the good stuff comes in. And so um, one of the things that Dr. Hansen does, and you know, he's not a Christian or anything, but he advocates for having these moments in our life where we stop and we think, what am I grateful for? Like, what happened today that is worth putting in the positive part of the ledger so that I don't become this person who's just always running off the negative? That, that negative has benefits for us. It's there for a reason. It helps us to survive. But we could survive a really miserable person. We could survive as someone who's not that nice to be around. And so, as you can see there, um, in his book, Hardwiring Happiness, Hansen says, uh, he talks about the fact that studies have shown that cultivating gratitude increases satisfaction and builds resilience. So, your capability to handle the challenging stuff that life throws at you, even those sorts of things that might stick, that might feed into a, a sense of rejection or hopelessness or failure, your, the ability that you have to navigate that stuff increases through practices of gratitude. That, that's useful to know, isn't it? Um, that's really useful to know. At the same time, it's, while it's great to have sort of scientific, uh, science help us with problems like that, I think it's kind of something that we, it has the ring of kind of, common sense about it almost. It has the ring of the kind of stuff that comes through the wisdom traditions that we uh, are aware of in the world. And it definitely has a resonance with, with the wisdom tradition of Hebrew scripture. So um, most of you will know uh, the story of how, of how the Jewish religion got its, its scripts and, and how we share in them almost, it seems, arbitrarily. God revealed himself to a family of nomads out in the middle of nowhere, basically. And uh, we call the first person there Abraham, right? And against the background of a world where the gods were not particularly nice most of the time in culture, they, they tended to be the worst of humanity. Um, so they were, you know, if you look at the gods of the ancient Near East, they were as vindictive as people, if not more. They had, you know, lustful passions. Uh, they were deceptive. Uh, in most of the kind of creation myths, they, they don't actually will humanity any good. 
Uh, life for most of history, as people have observed, has been nasty, brutish and short. And human beings have projected that onto their ideas of the deity. But that was not the picture that Abraham got. That was not the revelation that Abraham received. Abraham received, according to the scriptures, a revelation of a God who willed him and his family good. Now, that didn't mean that it all turned out rosy all the time. If we follow the story forward, we know that Abraham's descendants became a slave class under one of the great empires of the time, the Egyptian Empire. And they were greatly oppressed there. And it might have been tempting to forget about this revelation of a good God that Abraham had had. But God breaks into the story again and says to these people, I'm going to liberate you. I'm going to take you somewhere good. I'm going to give you everything that you need as a people group to live a good life. I'm going to show you what it means to do that. And if you've got any familiarity with pretty much the whole record of what we as Christians call the Old Testament, the record of the Hebrew Scriptures, the life that is good, the life that God intends for people, that life of blessing is talked about as a life of worship, right? Does that make some sense to you? So he gives uh, this nation of Abraham's descendants a whole heap of instruction about what it looks like to live a blessed life, how you can live a good life, how you can receive the gift of good life from God is to worship rightly. It's often the distinction that's made between Israel and the surrounding nations, what they're worshipping and how they're worshipping. And it was very important, um, if you've read the Old Testament, that worship was kind of done the right way, not because uh, God's kind of petty. It's not that the details of that worship were arbitrary, even though it seems as though who he chose might have been. But it's because they all connect with what it means to live the good life, with what it means to be blessed and enjoy the best of what God has intended for humanity. And um, the worship life of Israel looks like this. Remember. Remember the good, right? So the most significant feast celebration that the Hebrews, that Israel, that the Jews celebrate is called the Passover and it remembers that God saved them when they were a slave class under the heels of an empire and took them somewhere good. It's actually really interesting to just analyse that because many cultures have a kind of mythology of where they came from. They don't normally exalt their history as slaves. But this is where the Hebrew religion is different. God says, you were slaves, but I had something better for you. Remember that. Tell your generations, from one generation, you tell your children that you were slaves and now you're not. And you tell your children to tell their children that we were slaves and now we're not. This is a pattern that is repeated across the religious ceremonial life of Israel. It is to remember, to remember, to remember, and to be thankful. 
to be thankful that God has done good things. That makes sense to me if I come from the position as a Christian that God has created us. He knows how we work and he knows that for us to work, for us to live the good life, for us to have everything that God intended us to have, we need to have a posture of openness and of gratitude because there are other things that are working against that in our life. And so to have the good, to be in connection with God, is to be grateful. It just confirms the science for me. Uh, The science makes sense for me as a Christian because I believe that God created us and the world that way. And the passage that we've looked at today comes up in exactly this scenario. It's what's called a psalm of thankfulness. There's a few of them, and typically they got read out during these feasts where they were remembering the good that God had done and they were being grateful for the good that God had done. So someone would get up and they would read this psalm. I was in the pit. I felt the snare of death. God delivered me. It starts out by acknowledging the challenge of life, the difficulty of life, that spiral that we talked about. Verse 3, the cords of death entangled me, the anguish of the grave came over me. I was overcome by distress and sorrow. A little later on, uh, I like this bit because I totally relate to it. Your translation might say something about the simple-minded, God cares for the simple-minded. Actually, that word comes up quite a lot in the wisdom literature and it normally gets translated as a fool. Um, So my dark moments, when I'm on the spiral, I know, because I I can actually even have the physical reaction of wanting to punch myself in the head, you idiot. Uh, It's normally on a Sunday night when I'm scanning over my sermon and going, I shouldn't have said that, you you kind of want to jump out of who you are and be someone else if you could just uh, evacuate all the stuff about yourself that you hate. You know that feeling, don't you? you I don't know. what You probably don't call yourself an idiot, but you, you know what I mean. You're a fool. That was a foolish thing to say. That was such a foolish thing to do. I cannot believe that I've done that again. I cannot believe that I'm in this place again. Patalium, you idiot. So you can remember that next time, maybe uh, instead of punching yourself in the head like I do or groaning, poor Cheryl, and she's often sitting next to me groaning, uh, and punching myself in the head, you can call yourself a batayum. But the pattern goes like we would expect it to. The psalmist doesn't stay there. He says, yep, I've, I've been in that spiral. I know what takes me there. I'm, I'm an idiot at times. And yet, I love God because he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. He turned his ear to me. And I'm going to call on him as long as I live. Verses nine, uh, 7 to 9 say, When I was brought low, he saved me. Return to your rest, my soul, for the Lord has been good to you. For you, Lord, have delivered me from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. It's really just... Uh, the formula kind of captured for when the body of Israel was gathered in Jerusalem. Someone gets up and says, I know about the spiral. We all do. 
But God has brought us through. We've had those dark nights of the soul, but God has delivered us. I think about um, this kind of coming through in the Christian story. So we've been talking about the Jewish uh, religious context. It also comes through in Christianity. And Tilly, if you could just flick to Romans 12 there. This is from Eugene Peterson's translation. So here's what I want you to do. God helping you take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing that you can do for him. And one more thanks, Till. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. You might be familiar with the translation that says, do not conform to the patterns of this age, but be renewed by the renewing of your mind, right? So it's it's interesting how directly it, it, it relates and dovetails with this idea that it's about gratitude. We can so easily be conformed to a pattern that says I'm not happy enough, anything good that I've got, I deserve because I worked hard for it. Really, the the and the the opposite of this thread that we see coming through Psalms and here Romans, which says, "Don't close in on yourself like that. Don't continue to develop those pathways of ingratitude, of negativity, of things not being good enough, even." of consideration of your own foolishness. But arrest those thoughts and think to yourself, has God gotten me through this far? Yes, he has. Do I have blessings in my life? Sometimes it may be harder to answer that question in the affirmative than others, but there is always something that we can be grateful for at the risk of getting a little bit Pollyanna-ish there. Now, I can't, as a Christian, say that this is kind of only some kind of force in the universe, though I think it works for everyone. Gratitude works for everyone. Dr. Hansen writes about it from from a Buddhist perspective a lot of the time, actually. The scandal uh, of Christianity has always been, continues to be, for me, the particularity of it. Right? It's not a mindless force at work in the universe. It's not even just some trick of the mind. Here, happy people stay happier. As a Christian, I believe that we have a particular revelation of who God is and God's intention for history and humanity and the universe in the person of Jesus Christ. I think actually that that's been Christianity's power as well. Whether or not we agree with it, nothing has had the influence on history that the story of Jesus Christ has. It absolutely, I mean, we, um, 
we're talking about Athanasius in, in the original context in, in the 4th century there. So we're talking 300 years after Jesus and the known world has gone from uh, being sort of variously pagan, to, for want of a better word, to kind of going, there's something about this uh, crazy uh, kind of Galilean teacher. We're not even Jews. There's something so compelling about his call that we should put our ethnicity, our old religion aside, the things that have divided us and, and unify under the banner of somebody who says the way up is the way down. If you want to be great, you've got to be the least. Phenomenal. But part of that scandal, part of the particularity of it, is that Jesus, even going beyond Jewish practice at the time, and Jewish belief was that this good life isn't just for a particular people, but it's for all people. And Jesus sort of says it's not a particular temple for the Jewish people, but the temple now will be in all humanity. God wants to live in the lives of all who would be open to this idea that Jesus is doing something in history. And this is where the power of gratitude from a Christian perspective comes in. When you have this hope that it's all in God's plan, that it's all going to be turned to the good, that is irrepressible. And the... The, the missionary waves of Christianity, the hospitals, the schools, everything uh, that Christians have risked to do for others is anchored in this idea that we have gratitude for something that hasn't even happened completely yet. Inasmuch as Jesus has come and invited us to be his people, he has invited us to be part of this hope that it's all going to work out and we can participate in the achievement of that good work here and now. And so you can see how that can fuel a life. Uh, even when great challenges come our way, a life of gratitude for the good things, not only that God has done, but that God is doing. And it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Because in as much as we can say, I trust that God will turn this for good. We can invest our life in the face of all sorts of challenges and struggles. I'm going to um, invite us to have a moment now. And Tilly, could you just flick up to that last part of the psalm? I imagine we can come at this um, from a variety of places and it can be of some benefit. If we sort of feel like the, the idea of God is just a bridge too far for us, um, there is good science that says that the practice of gratitude is a good thing for you. So we're going to take uh, a moment just to think about the things that we might be thankful for. 
And even if we're standing right outside the Christian or Jewish tradition, we can, we, can, we can benefit from that. We can begin to develop neural pathways. We can begin to stimulate synapses um, to take us to a place where we're better equipped to deal with what life might throw at us. We might feel uh, somewhat agnostic, and I think most people of faith kind of oscillate a little bit. <laughs> where we'll, it, it is a struggle in the face of trials to believe in God sometimes. That's why we do this. That's why we remind ourselves of the good things that have happened in the past and the good things that are going to come. But perhaps then it's just useful to, to open ourselves to the idea that if there are good things in our life, that they have a source outside ourselves and they have a source even outside the good people in our lives, that life is a gift and and we can choose to receive it and meditate upon it in that regard. And then finally, if you're in the same boat as me um, and you do get stirred by this first century Jewish teacher who turned the world upside down, you can be grateful even for what God is going to achieve. So let's take just a minute to stop and think about what we can be grateful for. And then after that, I'm going to ask if you have something that you would like to express gratitude about, there's something really useful in doing that. Have a look at Psalm 116 verses 17 to 19 here. I will sacrifice a thank offering to you and I will call on the name of the Lord. I will fulfill my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord in your midst, Jerusalem. There was a corporate dimension to this and the beauty of that is you don't have to steward your mind alone. Sometimes it is too hard to bust out of the spiral. But here we can be part of a group of people who say we are grateful together and we can help each other. We can say, hey, Graham, I get that you've had a tough day, but remember a situation like this years ago and you couldn't see a way out of it and we prayed about it. God got you through it. So I'm going to ask the band to to come up. Let's take just 30 seconds in silence to think about that which we are grateful for. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website